Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have a very personal and emotional interview with my good friend Dominic. I've known Dom for over 25 years. We went to school together and shared a love of heavy metal music, attending many gigs and festivals together. And after school we lost touch but have come back into each other's lives a couple of times. Dominic moved to Colombia over a decade ago but returned with his daughter after struggling with various drug and alcohol addictions. And when he came back to Bedford, I bumped into him and we started to hang out again with our children. But again, we also lost touch. But then three years ago, I bumped into Dominic after he'd spent a night smoking crack cocaine. And as someone in recovery myself, I recognised the signs. But before we had a chance to speak again, he had moved back to Colombia. Now, just over a year ago, I was made aware that Dominic was in a coma in Colombia. Dominic survived this incident and is now in recovery for both drug and alcohol addiction. And when I was due to head out to Colombia a few weeks ago, I reached out to Dominic. I said, can we hang out? And he agreed. And I also asked him if I could interview him, if I could hear his story, if I could share that with the listeners of this podcast. And again, he agreed. So this is very personal, very emotional, and also very raw in places. But if you do have any questions about it and you want to reach out to me, my email address is peter at defiance.news. Before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. All right, Dom. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you feeling? Um, yeah. Interested. Okay. <laughs> in what's going to happen. So bit of context for anyone who's listening I've known you for 27 years yeah disclosure disclosure yeah. but there's probably a period in that of about 15 years where we lost contact yeah so we knew each other from 14 to 18 19 yeah went our separate ways and then we'll talk about when we bumped into each other again <laughs> but we've both been through a, a different experience with drug and alcohol abuse mm-hmm. you definitely worse than me but I wanted to talk to you about it. Um, sure. I, I think you've got a fascinating story. Uh, you're a friend of mine. Uh, you know, even with 15 years not seeing you in the middle, mm. love you dearly, want the best for you. But I want to talk about it because I think uh, addiction is a, a very interesting subject that sometimes people veer away from talking about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, I think it was about three years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, so it was about five years ago I knew you were back in Bedford. Yep. We were hanging out. Um, me and my kids and you and 
your daughter, mm-hmm. um, and then didn't see you for about a year. I think it was about a year, and I went to work one morning in the Embankment Pub in Bedford. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say what happened? Um, you bumped into a crack addict. Yeah, I don't really remember very much of that of that time, um, but I do remember. I was sitting there. I had some dodgy people with me who were kind of manipulating me at the time. Um, and I remember I was waiting for my dealer to arrive. And you cornered me. Yeah. And we sat down and you tried to persuade me to, to come with you. Yeah. So what I remember is I get a, I've got a coffee um, and I see you come. You came down the stairs. I think you were staying there the mm. night. And I was like, oh, hi, hi how are you doing? You're all right? And you were, yeah, I'm fine. And I didn't realize anything was going on. You just said you'd stay the night there. Um, but I don't know if you remember, you wanted to borrow my phone. Yeah, no, I don't remember. Yeah, so you wanted to borrow my phone, and I said to you why. And then you explained you've been on it and you wanted to score. And uh, as somebody, you know, I've done plenty of drugs myself. But you explained to me that you were, you were doing crack. And I've always found that as a drug a scary one Mm. like I'd always set my limits as yeah I could smoke some pot maybe do some MDMA and cocaine was my drug of choice I think I was I I was a good couple of years clean so I recognized so I did see a pattern Mm. and you wanted to borrow my phone and uh, yeah I tried to persuade you to not to do it to come with me right I remember you being really annoying because in my in in that state I was focused on just getting the next hit. Yeah. And so I was like, yo, this guy's getting in the way. So I wouldn't let you use my phone. I remember I didn't let you use okay. your phone. You got access. I think you had access anyway. What you don't know, I think you, I don't think you know, is after that, I called your brother. Mm. And I said, I've just seen Dom. Hadn't seen him for about a year. This is what's going on. And I also spoke to our, our mutual friend, Tim. Mm. And they filled me in on the gap all the stuff I didn't know for the last, yeah. the previous 15 years. So, and then we're going to jump forward and then backwards, but jump forward maybe a year, six months, I can't really remember, and I'm told you've moved to Colombia, mm. which I was surprised and shocked by, and then jump forward another period of time, and I hear you're in a very bad situation in the hospital. And now we're here in Bogota. So we're going to work through it all. The where I want to start is, I think I smoked pot with you at school. Oh yeah, gotcha. I think I did. I think the first time I smoked pot was was with you. I think it was you, me, and Tim, down by. Yeah, I know it's mad. I think it was down by, down by the river. How much do you remember Bedford? Do you remember? You remember the uh, suspension bridge? Yeah. So you go off across there, take a left. You go and there's like the rowing place. There. Yeah. Yeah. Behind there. Okay. Yeah. It's a good spot. Um, good spot. <laughs> I I didn't do any other drugs apart from smoke pot in school years. Mm. Uh, my first experience outside of that was at uni. When did you first go beyond smoking pot? I don't even consider smoking pot really a drug anyway. No, neither do I that much. But I do find it uh, an obstacle to to the solution of all the drug addiction. Yeah. But anyway, um, my proper heavy drug use cocaine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I drank quite a bit when I was a teenager, but you know, it was a bit, it was more than everybody else. You know, that 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 became my handle was that I could drink and do more than anybody else. At a at when we were teenagers, so yeah. I didn't notice that because 
We used to go to Russell Park, right? Yeah, Thunderbird. Thunderbird. Uh, K-Sider. Yeah. There was a big group of us. Uh, boys and girls we yeah. used to hang out. I didn't notice a pattern of you drinking more than anyone no. else. Now you tell me that. That was a long time ago. We're talking yeah. 25 years. I think that became, especially as I became kind of turned 18, that became my kind of slight identity. You okay. know, that I could out-drink, out-drug anybody. Right. And um, I had to leave home because my drinking was starting to get out of control. Okay. And so, quite sensibly, my parents, with tough love, said, um, yeah. And I went to live with Tom. In London? Uh, no, that was in Bedford, first of all. Okay. And I was working in pubs, so I was drinking a lot more. I had a problem with gambling as well in the, in, in, in the pubs. On the machines? On the machines. I mean, addiction... Yeah. That's the thing. It will just it will find its way to, to come out of you. But yeah, I went to London about nineteen, and um, I was all by myself. But I felt like you know a big boy. You and didn't want to bother with the universe university thing. I I went well actually. God, it's so difficult to remember. All I know. Stuff. I know. I went to university actually. I went to the university at eighteen. I went to Lancaster to study art, fine art. Okay. Tim had leukemia. Yes. And and so after about six months, I dropped out and went back to London to be with him. Yeah. Because that, that tore me apart. And obviously that lasted about five years, the whole ordeal. Yeah. And while I was in London, um, I got a job in the pub across from the hospital so I could visit him. Okay. And this went on for a couple of years and I managed to get myself, managed to talk my way into a cocktail bar okay. in Soho. And they trained me up and, you know, it was, for me, it was like, wow, this is adult life. You know, there were semi-famous people, people with money, and there was cocaine. And I got my first rap free from the dealer, the, the bar dealer. And after that, I mean, I loved it. I loved it. Because it gave me all the, all the confidence that, that I was lacking, basically. It's funny you say that lack of confidence. You know, I was talking to... I think it was Adrian here, I was talking to him about you, and I said, the thing about Dom, like, I was never cool at school. Like, I, I, was, I didn't play an instrument. I, was, I just didn't have it. And I was like, Dom was the naturally cool one. Who, look at you now, even now, for fuck's sake. Look at you. <laughs> would you? Uh, I was like, he was a cool one. He would always walk in the room. Like, he was just cool. All the girls fancied you. Like, you were just cool. So to hear you say you didn't have any confidence... That's kind of interesting. I felt completely the opposite. Yeah, interesting. Inside. Yeah, gotcha. I was terribly insecure growing up. So, yeah, alcohol and cocaine gave me the confidence to, to show off behind the bar, um, experience that lifestyle. And it just became, it became a necessary thing, especially when you're working five to five in the morning every day. Daily? Was it daily? Daily, pretty much. And did Monday, it, Tuesdays. And it very quickly became daily? Oh, God, yeah. Okay. okay, every night I needed at least a gram. Okay. Just to get me through, because I was drinking as well, and you don't want to be drunk while you're in that situation. So yeah, that's where it all took off, really. And then I was there for about five years. I worked through different bars, getting better. But the higher level I got in the, in the cocktail bar industry, mixologists, as they call us, um, the more coke I needed. Okay. So where it got to be a serious problem, especially how much it costs. In, yeah, in of funding. course. So yeah, and then, you know, then becomes all the other vices. I had to steal from the, the tills to, 
to be able to afford this. I mean, everyone's taking their cut in that industry. Yeah. The bar dealer is giving a cut to the manager. So I felt it was my right to <laughs> take part of the, the money from the deals. Okay. And then went for about five years. Your circle of friends were still our mutual friends or a different No, circle? God, no. I kind of I, I separated from everyone. Obviously, I still saw Tim because he was in the hospital. Yeah. And some friends that came to visit him sometimes. But yeah, no, my, 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 my life became Soho and, and all that vibe. Okay. Um, when did the cocaine stop being just a nighttime thing? Did it ever become a Saturday morning, middle of the day? It would, it, after, after a couple of years, because my day would start about three o'clock in the afternoon okay. with hangover, yeah, it became you needed a, a quick line before work just to get you going up and then then you get enough money to pay for the next grab for that night and that would be the kind of the cycle did you think you had a problem back then at the end i left it all i kind of had a bit of a breakdown because yeah i knew that i had a serious problem because my life wasn't going anywhere i was just in this cycle of day after day wasting my money getting in some really dodgy situations as well some really some really dangerous and really personally humiliating you know so yeah after about five years I jacked it all in and went back to live with my parents were they aware at the time there was a problem or did you have to confess I it's weird I talked to them um, long ago now but you know that I did they realize and they didn't realize even though I thought I'd made it made it clear but I do remember coming back to Bedford after everything giving up mm-hmm. and going for a curry with them and me going for a line in the toilet while I was talking to them about all the problems. Yeah. So. I empathise with, with that. Um, so, yeah, I had a bit of a crash down and um, I really wanted a total change. And so I decided to go travelling for a year. Right. So at this point, you weren't into the... I say the hard drugs, the harder beyond no, cocaine. No. Okay. Nothing. I mean, I took pills as well. Yeah. Pills, MDMA, smoked weed, but that was it. You know, I never thought about heroin or crack. Okay. At no point. I mean, this didn't happen until recently, really, the last five years. Okay. So you go traveling. Go traveling. Went to go to Brazil mm-hmm. to do social work. Okay. It was all filled up in Brazil. So the next option was Colombia. Which is not the greatest place for a cokehead to go to. What was going on in my head? I mean, if if you're, you know, when I used to do coke, I I would have loved to have come to Colombia and 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 get some amazing quality cocaine for five, ten pound a bag. When I was coming out of my addiction, which is not comparable to yours, but at the same time, Colombia would have been the worst place for me to go to. I I mean, I must obviously I was self-delusional. Yeah, yeah. and, I mean, I, this is why I kind of talked to my parents years ago about this. Why did you let me go to Colombia? I mean, they didn't, they, they didn't really know, so it wasn't their fault at all. And I, being an addict, even maybe I wasn't even using at that point, I was still manipulating to get what I wanted. But you're always end. an addict. The point is, even in, even in recovery, like my friend Rich Roll, he's, um, he refers to himself as a recovering alcoholic. He hasn't probably drunk maybe 15 years, mm. but he refers to him as an alcoholic. Yeah. He says, I'm always an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, God, yeah. I mean, the way that addiction's manifested in so many different forms in my life, it's clear. I mean, you hear, yeah, you have people that say recovered alcoholic, recovering. Mm. And you have the analogy of, well, if you get shot by a bullet, you can recover, but it doesn't mean you're immune from the next bullet. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm in recovery and I'm recovering. And we even got to emotional sobriety yet. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, We're getting so. there. So you're in Colombia. How long did you last? So I was in Colombia about six years. How long did you wait uh, until day one? No, it was about <laughs> six months. Okay, that's impressive. About six months. But I do remember that time, and like we just said a minute ago, emotional sobriety. I was all over the place. Were you drinking still? Yes, but not heavily. Okay. But yeah, eventually I found it, especially being Colombia, and I found it in big, big amounts and big time dealers as well. But I mean, I was functioning. I was a functioning addict, you know, I managed to hold it together. I mean, I didn't build anything with my life, really. Um, I eventually got married, had a child. Yeah. And all the way through that, even though I was using, I was functioning. Same in the bar industry, really. I managed to function like that, you know. So, in, yeah, five years of Columbia, I've got a two and a half year old daughter. I've got a wife that unfortunately, one had the same problems with the addiction that I had, mm -hmm. but also had uh, mental health issues, which even I was trying to hold it together with a father and a husband, uh, unfortunately, the kind of craziness that ensued. I mean, there was schizophrenia, and bipolar, and... Broken people find each other. Exactly, yeah. I mean, when, when you feel, when your self-worth is so low, you look for somebody else with equal, if not less, uh -huh. to kind of validate your own sense of identity. So yeah, I mean, a lot of craziness, but in the end, yeah, I, once again, I said, this is enough, enough is enough. And I went back to England with, with my daughter. I remember you telling me the story though. It wasn't just a case of, you just picked your daughter up and left. That you actually, you kind of had to escape, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was, I was really worried about the safety of my daughter. I was really worried about my own mental health at this point, because I was all alone out here with her. I need some support, you know, when you're, when you're in that situation. But yeah, I mean, I had, I had starting to get into, you know, Colombia is not the place you want to start getting to trouble. You don't um, want enemies around here. Enemies and debts. And so things started to get dangerous. Also, just, just being able to take my daughter back to England, which was number one priority, it was difficult. We managed to get permission in the end. And I was hoping my wife would come back to England, but it, unfortunately that never happened. But yeah, in the end, I managed to get out of Colombia. I managed to escape out of Colombia. We was literally praying to get out. Had you spoken to your parents up front, said yeah. the problem's back, you're yeah. coming home? Yeah, yeah I, just, I couldn't handle specifically the violence for my wife and, and you know the craziness. And I was worried it was starting to affect our child. The violence? Well, yeah, I mean, she would, she would attack and... Right. 
throw glasses in my face and things like this. Okay, okay. Knives and things like this. When she, when she lost it. Okay. So your parents are aware. Is Nick aware at this time? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with, with addiction is you try and you try and cut everyone off, as yeah. I've done recently, because you feel you're doing so much damage to everybody. You don't really want them to know. One, it's shame. Two, it's you don't want to be a burden on other people. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure he had a good idea. And so you come back. This is when we end up meeting up. But you come back and you go into, you go into rehab. That time, no. Okay. Um, it took it took about five years before I went into rehab for because the alcohol came back. But no, I did a pretty good, pretty good job of lifting myself up. Got a flat, yeah. got along in school, got a job. I was a single parent mm -hmm. because um, my my wife disappeared. But yeah, I managed to get myself back up on my feet again, and it, it was tough. But. Um, Slowly but surely, addiction came back in because being, you know, being a single father, loneliness, responsibility. Even though I had amazing support from my family, yeah, I just went into self-destructive mode again and started drinking heavily. I'm trying to remember when we we got in contact again. I think so. If, if Elon was two and a half, hmm. she's the same age as my son Connor. Because they're at school together, which is bad, isn't it? Yeah, no, is it that bad? I was trying to remember when I first saw you again, and I've got this weird feeling you were with Tim, and it was by Russell Park. Of, ironically, that park we used to go and drink in. Yeah. I think I was there with Connor, and you two were walking past. But I can't remember exactly, but we definitely got back in touch because we hung out a few times. It was before I got married. I was, okay. I, th I think, yeah, because yeah, I was still with Claire, and. Scarlet was a baby. And I remember we went to, it was either the Kite Festival or the River Festival. Yeah, my, my, We did that together. Yeah. And I think Connor was probably about six or seven. And that's, so you'd been back in bed for a while. Yeah, quite and a while. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I hadn't known four or five that. years. So you must have been going, started drinking again about the time I started to see you. Yeah, I mean, it started to get bad, I mean, as it's always with these things, I managed to keep it under control. Uh -huh. But yeah, after I think when I was when did I first go to rehab, been three times now. Three, okay. Yeah, it must have been about thirty-three. Thir okay. Well, even probably a bit younger. Your idea, or your parents, or uh, that first time it was a kind of an intervention. Okay. With my family, my brother as okay. well. Sat down and said, "You can't." Is enough is enough. How did they know what was going on though? Because if you're living with in your own flat, because you start to become unreliable. You know, I'd be late for taking along to school. Family events. I'd I'd turn up drunk. Right. Noticeably be drunk. Um, so was it was the drinking the bigger problem at this point? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just drank and smoked weed. Uh, I didn't have money for cocaine. Right. Yeah, it was just generally drinking alcohol is probably, for me, is worse than cocaine okay. in some ways because just it, spiritually and emotionally, it brings you right down. It crushes you. And so, yeah, my, my at that point, my soul was crushed. I was physically addicted. 
so I had to have drink. I remember my uh, my family used to ration me to five cans of beer, <laughs> um, and, and they'd literally come around and bring it to me each night. Jesus, so, I mean it's a pretty sorry state of affairs. Yeah, yeah. And you know I'd be begging for money. Um, from your parents? Yeah. Uh, lying, you know, all the, all the yeah, typical yeah, yeah. traits. Um, so yeah, I went to rehab, and what a fantastic experience that was. Yeah? Yeah, incredible. Which one? I went to the Providence Project okay. in Brighton, Bournemouth. I highly recommend it for anybody who's suffering. It's one of the cheapest as well. And yeah, I went there and had a, an incredible awakening, if you, if you call it that. Mm-hmm. Great experience, you know, with with other other addicts, and got introduced into the whole philosophy behind recovery and did twelve it, steps. And you, did, you did twelve steps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I went through that process and came out a m- month later, ready to change the world. Yeah. Um, didn't last very long. Okay. Because of, I thought, yeah, I've got it under control now. Okay. You know, I've had a month clean. I just keep it calm. So I think I relapsed pretty much straight away on the first night. <laughs> I just wanted a bottle of wine and a bag of weed, and that would be enough, just to celebrate. Just once? Just once. I think I managed to get it under control. I remember my, my mum caught me with that pretty, pretty early on. And then I, I managed about a year sober after that and got my life back together. Yeah. It is incredible how, they always tell you this stuff in rehab, but it is incredible how once you get sober and once you believe, things start to prosper, you know, it's that kind of, I started to get money and, you know, things started to go well during that year. But unfortunately, it always comes back to the, the psyche telling you, ah, you've got it under control this time, you know, not willing to give up give it up for life let's say so yeah I think another five years just about keeping things under control just about functioning but towards the end of that once again it happened where I just you know I was like drinking all, all day long and you can't be a parent and do that what, when was this what about what age this was when it long would have been eight or nine I suppose okay so at this time around, I begged, I begged my family to, to put me back into rehab right. because I was an emotional wreck. It's so strange though because I did know you through this period. I yeah. Not, I didn't see you a lot. I saw you occasionally. Um, it's easy to see each other at school. Yeah, yeah. see the school. Yeah, but the school. But you know, met up a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't aware of anything. Nothing at all. I mean, I was generally, you know, I kept it. I kept it really yeah. well hidden. And I didn't get into trouble with the police or things like this. And with the support of my family, I just about managed to be an adequate father. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I kept it hidden. You keep, you keep a mask on, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You don't want, you, they say, what is it? You're, a, you're an eggshell. There's nothing inside. And you manage to keep that, that shell on to keep everyone fooled. But, yeah. So you went back into rehab again? Went back into rehab again. Six weeks this time, same place. And um, once again, incredible experience. Incredible experience. Especially this time because I discovered a bit more about myself. I was going through exactly the same process I'd done five years ago. 
but this time I was giving support to other people because of my experience and that the second time and that's what really highlighted this the second rehab was I felt I suddenly started to feel my own identity mm -hmm. and that I could actually after so many years of being feeling that you're pathetic you've got nothing to offer that you're a burden suddenly to be support to people and people to you know put it in your face and, and say look you're you know thank you for this and started to feel who I was so I came out of that wonderful again so you were both a sponsor and a sponsee yeah yeah I've done both I mean I don't know exactly I don't know how I feel exactly so, so about um, 12 step I mean I go through there are lots of ideas within it which I really value you know some, some very basic principles. have you done no but I've read it um, yeah. you know I talked to you about I mean my addiction went from casual cocaine use uh, on a Friday Saturday night yeah. or someone working in advertising to getting divorced to very quickly going to do it daily to then ending up in an ambulance and <clears throat> forced sobriety. So I didn't need to go through it. Sometimes I question if I drink too much. I don't drink often, but I can, I can mm. drink too much sometimes. But I looked at 12 Step and I've, you know, because my friend Rich Roll did it, I went to one of his, <laughs> this is the most Hollywood thing you can do. He, I was visiting him in LA and he said, I'm going to my um, AA meeting. Do you want to come? I was like, yeah, I'll go and see what it's like. And it was in, Clint, I think it was Clint Eastwood's old house, now owned by Sasha Gervaisi. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, and it was just a really weird experience, but they were all saying, like, talk about 12 steps. So I, I had a look, and I just couldn't get my head around the religious bit. Richard um, Roll, is he, he's an author, isn't he? Richard Roll, he did a book, he did a book called, uh, I can't remember, it's Finding Ultra. So he went from an alcoholic to a vegan ultra athlete. Right. Who, it's unbelievable, his story. He ended up doing five Ironmen in five Hawaiian Islands. The target was five days. He ended up being seven, but still unbelievable. Yeah. Like, just to even do one, and he did, yes, yeah, the most unbelievable story, and he's a really amazing human. Um, he wrote a book about that. But, yeah, it was the religious part I couldn't connect with on the 12-step. Mm. Also, I didn't feel like I needed it, and I think a lot of people struggle with the religious oh, bit. Oh, yeah, me, me all the way through. I yeah. still do. It's the religious bit that is a, is a barrier for a lot of... But my other friend, I've got a friend, I, you know, I won't name her, but she lives out in um, Los Angeles. Uh, she's from the UK. You know, she's, she stands by 12 steps. She still goes to her meetings. I mean, the basic principle is, is good. I mean, you could take the 12 steps and break it down into three, really. Accepting you have a serious problem that, that, that you cannot solve by yourself. Mm-hmm. Asking for help, whether that be from God or from from people around you, and then just really because I mean the whole the whole idea of twelve step is that you're self-destructing because of stuff that you've done in the past that is still affecting you, things you haven't made amends for. Yeah, you've got to go and make amends for everything. So you have to just make a big long list and get out there. What you're avoiding right now. Yes, yes. Thank you, Pete. <laughs> But that's the truth, right? Yeah, no, no, it is. And I, totally. I guess the reason you're avoiding it is because you've done it so many times. It becomes it becomes fairly impotent after a while. Yeah. I mean, the first time I can remember, I can remember the first times I did, it and I felt incredible after I'd made amends with people. But the, the third, the fourth, fifth time round, um, 
pulled some deaf ears, quite understandably. I think there's people feel a lot of inertia with this as well, because you sometimes have to admit really shameful things. Oh God, yeah. But the the weird reality is, once you've done it, like a weight comes off you. Mm. And I'm sure exactly the same would happen now. But look, we'll get into that. Yeah. That's second rehab. Yeah. Third rehab. So what happens after second rehab? You come out. Second rehab, right? I come out. Um, things are pretty good for a while, a couple of years. Um, but I can't. I can't keep sober. At this point, I'm kind of managed to get three or four months. And then crashing. And when I is cr- the temptation always there though? Are you fighting it? Are you like fighting the urge to go to the shop, get a bottle of wine, or so? Are you? F- yeah, not so much like that. I'm fighting the urge, even though I'm sober and I'm, I'm feeling happy and I'm going to the gym and I feel healthy. I want to be like everyone else. I want to be able to go out, you know, because you, you cut yourself off socially. Because, yeah, I'd go out. I'd go to a party, and. Um, yeah, to spend the whole night wanting to drink, and it's not fun. So I'd have a couple of months clean and then crash. But when I mean crash, I'd drink myself over a week. You know, my daughter would go stay with my parents, and I'd literally drink myself into where I was drinking like um, a bottle of vodka. I'd wake up at five in the morning in with tremors, drink a bottle of vodka, Walk that walk of shame to the to the off license, buy a bottle of vodka, drink it until I passed out about four hours later, wake up a couple of hours later, do exactly the same. And that would carry on throughout twenty-four hours every single day. And yeah. And then maybe I'd pick myself up, my family would step in again, bless them, and and sort me out. And it's been a little while longer, and it would happen again. And so this was happening. I was getting really tired of this happening because every time, every time I, I, I built something up. I can remember one of the worst times was I'd saved up about fifteen hundred quid to go on holiday with my daughter. Great. Yeah. And I'd spent about nine months saving that up, and then in one weekend I blew it all oh. in drinking. And, yeah, I just got so tired. Um, so tired of that, that I went to see the doctor to ask for some help, and they put me on anti- antidepressants. Because um, I was also getting trouble at work, because I'd have to take a week off while I crashed. Or they'd notice, they'd see me the next day, for example, and I'd be totally red-faced and smell of alcohol. And I had to drive. So I went to the doctor. He put me on antidepressants. And that was really bad. I wasn't I stopped drinking, I just took the antidepressants. But I I really crashed. Not in the same way as alcohol, but I couldn't get out of bed. Didn't want to leave bed, I was scared to go outside. I didn't go to work. I just didn't go. I just stayed in bed for literally three months watching television trying to occupy my mind with something how are you financially affording this yeah at that point my work was still paying even though you're i was in sick pay i i was almost six months in sick pay i mean they were so good to me 
but in the end they had to fire me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and so I lost my job. And so during this time, somehow, and I don't really remember how, but I found crack. Yeah. See, what I don't know is where's the... I didn't realise this was mainly alcohol. This is... A lot of this is new to me. I assumed it was all drugs. Where did the big leap to crack and heroin come from? Because, you know, it all that's a massive leap. In, mm. you know, everyone knows. Everyone sees cocaine as a social drug. Mm. But crack is suddenly seen as, like, a, an addict's drug. And heroin is like, what the fuck are you doing? So... Like, where did that big leap... Because, yeah. yeah, how did that happen? I probably... I, was, I could have... I would have been up, up to about 35. I was confident I'd never take crack or heroin. Um, like I said, I really... This, this this part of my life is so hazy. I started to get... I was so lonely, I think, was part of the problem. So I'd drink and go, go down to the pub and just meet with dodgy people. One, I was buying weed and a little bit of... Of coke off them when I could, meow meow it was back then, and I got into I would, I would get I was lonely I'd invite people back to my house, and one of these occasions, I invited back someone who takes crack, okay, and they introduced me to it, and I really don't remember, but literally in the space of about a month or two, I'm smoking crack every single day, and then I get into heroin to kind of bring you down. I had a wonderful studio in my house, uh, really good equipment. Are you enjoying yourself though? Because like, I, I think the film Trainspotting did a really good thing of showing the positives and the negatives of drugs. Because a lot of people just think it's all shit. Yeah. Like sometimes you're having a fucking great time taking drugs. Like, were you enjoying yourself? Uh, when I started taking crack, yeah, yeah. yeah. I loved it. It got me out of bed. Mm -hmm. It got me writing music again. I, mean, I literally wrote all my music. I've been trying to do for years and in the space of about six months with crack. I stopped drinking as well, pretty much, which helped my emotional stability a lot. But it meant every morning I'd wake up and that day I'm going to sort everything out, but I need to have a hit on a crack pipe to tidy the house to start doing this stuff. And so I'd sell a piece of my equipment. I'd go to the Compraventor what they call cash converters. Yeah. Crack converters. Crack converters, yeah. Um, and every single day it was that walk of shame again, not to the off-license, but it was to cash converters with my speakers or my guitar or my mixing desk and pulling it for that day for very little money to be able to get my hit. Right. And then um, what period of time had you basically fucking solved the lot? Oh, I needed, mm. I needed at least 50 pounds a day. Right. Um, at least, and then you with crack, it's is a is a big up, and so you mix it with heroin to bring you down. And heroin's the, the most dangerous of them all because it takes so long to get off it. Uh -huh. You know, in three four days, I'll be physically addicted and I'll be vomiting in, in the morning, and have to have it. And so then I got into selling it to be able to sustain my habit. I invite, oh God, it turns into a real mess. Um, two lots of dealers I invited to live with me, and they lived with me. I had to get the, one attacked me with machete. I had to get the police sniffer dogs in, in the house to get him out. Then I invited another dealer in, and he started using me. This, this was part of the start of County Lines. Yeah. Um, he was part of that group. 
Interesting. I've just been started to cover knife crime in London and just started looking at county lines. I didn't know what it was at the time, but yeah. looking back in the, in the news now, yeah, this guy was from London, got his stuff from London, brought it down. You know, they dealt it all out. So I started getting involved in gangs, which for someone like me is not, not my usual scene. This is a real escalation of problems, though, right? Gotcha. This is, this is are you not in your mind thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Part of you, very, very, very far deep inside you, knows exactly what you're doing. But you, it causes such a split personality. Um, because you need the drugs. Because you need it. Yeah. You need yeah. it. And you think everything's going to be all right if you have it just then. I'll give up tomorrow. It is. You know, you literally, you're in this groundhog day, day after day. Um, I heard this great story once. This guy said, he went to the shop with his mate, and they, um, this guy smokes a lot. Mm. He smokes 40 a day. And whenever they go to the pub, they go to the shop on the way and they buy 20 cigarettes. And he's always, he said to him, he said, why don't you just buy 40? Because you're going to go back later. And he said, because every pack is my last pack. I'm the same right now, man. Yeah. But yeah, it is. Once that pack's done. Yeah. There's eight left. Um, yeah, you are. You're, it's, a, it's a constant, it's complete delusion. And I think, like I was saying, this kind of dividing your personality between what you know is reality, but you don't want to you know, confront, and the addict you, which is just trying to get, gloss over everything, just trying to get over there. Which is where, like with the alcohol and other drugs, I wasn't as deceptive. I was fairly manipulative. But if you ask me the truth, my, if my family sat down and asked me the truth, they could see and I, they would get it out of me that there was a problem. Did they know how bad this situation was? No. Do they even know now? Do they know yeah, about I all think, this stuff? Yeah, I think, well, seeing the devastation that caused when I left, yeah, I think they understood. Oh, hopefully I understand. I mean, it's difficult to explain to somebody who doesn't take in crack or heroin how powerful it is. Which comes to my point that I became a complete liar and a thief. And I never thought that was possible of me. You know? Even though I was a drunk before, even though I wasn't the best father I could be, or the, definitely not the best son, I, I was trying. And there was a part of me that was real, it was you could, you could get through to. Once I started taking class A mm -hmm. crack and heroin, I would just blatantly lie just to get out of here and steal. Um, and sell out all my dreams and sell out all my family and friends and my own daughter. And that is so demoralizing. But, you know, it's. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it really. It's you just become a completely different person. And so then you run away here. So then things got so bad. I mean, I've got dealers in living in my house that are threatening me. I owe them debts, so they'd give me a whole load of crack. I'd be cutting it up as well. So I started to get in trouble with them. Started to get attacked by them. I owe them lots of money. I'd be selling in town. It's a small town. Yeah. I'd be busking in the street. You know, I just had, I was so ashamed um, of what had become of me. That I, and I really don't even remember this decision. I don't know how it happened. I sold the house. 
because I was so in debt and I thought this would solve my problems. I thought I could start again. Yeah. You know, I just had this delusion that I would go off and become everything I hadn't, I'd been trying to become all these years. I mean, I felt being a, being a parent is the most incredible experience of my life, without doubt. But... You're not doing it. Yeah. Right now, yeah. Sorry to say. No, no, no. You know no, what I mean? True. I've got to... No, no, you're saying no, no, it's the no. most... You've, you've talked about the highs of the drugs and, yeah. you know, and everything there. And you've always... I know you've always been a talented musician, want to be a musician, but you're saying, look, a parent's the most incredible experience of your life. And, and, and here you are... Well, I ran five, away. I ran... miles from it. I didn't think I was a good... I didn't... I thought the bear off without me. Yeah. Literally. I'd caused so much devastation... Um, and I didn't want my I didn't want my daughter to see me as a crack addict, and so. But why did you run back here? Like you know, this is a triggering place for you. Well, I think I was like the first time I was you know, I was kidding myself. You know, I was self-deluding. I'm going to come and be a musician, but you. Come I'm going to become a musician. I'm going to be successful. But you're coming here to get cheap drugs. Yeah, in the back of my mind, but you know, if you asked me at the time, I would have said no. Did you just run away and not tell anyone? Yeah, you did. I, I just literally, I booked one flight and missed it. I was such a mess. Booked one flight, missed it. I was staying in the hotel because I, I didn't have a house at that point. That's when I saw you, that was it, because yeah. you, yes, I remember now, you told me you were going to Colombia. I, yeah, you tried to stop yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, I was like, come home with me. Yeah, I know. We'll sort it out. Yeah. Yes, now what I remember. What a fateful decision that was. So you come here. Yeah. The, it go, you go through your worst experience ever. Right, you mm. talked about this the other night. The drink gets really out of hand. The drugs get really out of hand. Like how bad? Like, and how quickly after you got here did that happen? Well, getting here, one there was no heroin and crack, because believe it or not, there's no crack in Colombia, pretty much. I uh, just coming to realization of what I've done, and also what had happened the year before, the year and a half before. Um, I'd given up everything I cared about. You know, the job, the house, the kids, my family. And so, even though in my mind I'm like trying to reinvent my new life, can't escape that. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm taking cocaine and drinking every single day just to, one, propel me forward to try and do the things that I'm trying to do, the music, and two, to forget the things I've done because I couldn't live with the the regret and the shame to be honest it's self-loathing and you nearly die for fuck's so, sake man and I heard about this yeah, I remember the phone call and I was like what what and yeah. you're in hospital and are you in a coma yeah yeah you're in a coma so two years later of me drinking two litres of spirits a day and five grams of coke and whatever weed. Um, and, you know, and at the end, like I said the other day, it was, it was getting like leaving Las Vegas with Nicolas Cage, um, just in a bed, drinking myself to death. And I knew I was doing it. And at some point, something's gonna give. And then it did give. And I woke up in hospital two months later, coming out of the coma. Um, luckily that night, a friend had come round who had the key to my apartment and found me slumped, purple, 
and rushed me to hospital. And um, I mean, yeah, during that time, I don't remember any of it. But yeah, I was in I was in intensive care two weeks, and they said I had a, a, a well. My my girlfriend told me they told her that he's going to go any minute. So they said to her that yeah, nine out of ten people are, aren't going to come out of here alive. Didn't Tim also? I'm sure Tom told me the story that Tim was very close as well. Yeah. During his, to the point of almost. To the point of being saying, you need to say goodbye. Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah. A good couple of times. Yeah. We thought that was it. Yeah. They, in fact, the do- doctors told him they didn't bother trying to give him hope anymore, I don't think. And he's still here. And he's still here. And your similar situation that you, well, not similar situation, no. but you know what I'm trying to say, yeah, yeah. the comparison. Yeah. And that, that whole experience with Tim affected you a lot. God, yeah. 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 I mean, that, that was... It's interesting being up because that's my only two real experiences of hospital, yeah. apart from childbirth. Um, so it did remind me much of that 20 years before when I ended up in hospital, in kind of like in the similar physical condition that Tim was. See, the thing was, I was coming. I told you this. I was coming out here. I knew I was going to Santiago. I knew I had to go to Cucuta. So I was like, "Fuck it, I'm just going to come to uh, Bogota." And I keep saying it wrong, don't I? Bogota. Bogota. I keep saying Bogota, Bogota, and see you. And I spoke to your brother and said, I'm going to go and see him. Yeah. I, 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 I thought you would look like shit. You look fucking amazing. I no, mean, I'm not just saying it, but you're like, you're ripped, you're looking good. And I'm like, fucking hell, how, can, how, how do I look so shit and you look so good, but you've been through that. But you're not, you're not just, you have got some long-term... Oh, yeah, I've got... It, yeah, and that's the crack of that. Yeah, they had to take out pretty much this lung for the crack or whatever they mix it with, smoking that stuff. Um, lifetime of smoking as well. They um, operated on my kidney. I mean, all, all my internal organs failed, which is why they thought I was going to die. I had to have dialysis and all this. They thought I'd have to have dialysis the rest of my life. But by some miracle and love, um, yeah, about so two months later, I kind of slowly come out of the, the coma. Do you, I mean, do you care about your own mortality now? Yes and no. Still. It's difficult. It's, it is a daily struggle. Okay. That self-destructive thing is still there. Do you know why it's there? Like, what's, what's the root of it? Well, I mean, the 12-step people would tell you it's spiritual unease, disease, disease, unease. Mm-hmm. It's trying to, trying to cover that. Um, I spoke to Tim yesterday. Okay. I gave him a call. Yeah. I said, I've seen Dom. And he said something quite telling. He said... Dom just needs to like understand that life's quite boring sometimes. <laughs> We've all accepted it. We've all got old, accepted it's quite boring. Yeah. Dom just needs to accept it's boring sometimes. Let's see, let's see the beauty in the ordinary things. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of at a crossroads now. Like I know you've relapsed a couple of times. We don't need to go into that, but you're like at a crossroads now. Like you're either going to do it again and die. That's the reality. Mm, that's the reality. Or you're not going to do it again and rebuild your life mm. to what it will be. Like, where are you mentally with that and emotionally with those decisions? And you know, you must be questioning or thinking about where you want the next year, five years, ten years. Like, what's going through your mind? Um, a lot of fear. 
Yeah. Um, What's the fear? Whether it's all going to go wrong again. You kind of, so many times you give up hope for yourself. So at the moment, it's trying to find some sort of faith that things, you know, things have turned out all right so far, believe it or not, even though, even, even, even though the way I've, I've treated myself, um, even though my own efforts to self-destroy myself, somehow I'm still here. I mean, this latest hospital thing was very close, but there's so many times in the years where I should be dead, without a doubt. Um, so it's kind of believing that, well, there must be a reason that I'm still here, you know? And that, and wanting to make up for all the, all, everything that I've done. Wanting to be a good father again, you know? So what, if you're gonna do 12 step, you gotta make up again, I mean. Yeah, that's gonna be, tr that's gonna be tough, man. But you, you can only do it by, by starting doing it, right? Yeah. Um, I also spoke to Nick yesterday. Okay. Of course I did, of course. Mm. I was, yeah, he knew I was here and he wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, and I said, you know, you said to me, I don't know if you realise what you said, but you said to me when we had coffee the other day that uh, I've got the best brother in the world and he's got the worst brother in the world. And I, I hope you don't mind, but I, I did tell Nick. I said, look, this is where his, this is where his head's at. And he's like, you say this fucking bollocks. He said, he's a great brother. And I love him, he just keeps going down the same fucking path. Mm. And he's uh, like, he just, he's there, he is there for you. Oh, you're right. Yeah, he, he's there for you. Like, mm. like he's, he wants you, he just thinks you need to own the first steps of, mm. of this. Um, oh, he's totally right. There's like, there's there's a few of us, and I, I feel almost a, a bit kind of rude and embarrassed that I've, stepped in here when other people have been dealing with this for years and I'm trying to you know wanting to help and talk to you but um, there was a group of people who were like we're just waiting for you and your brother's one of them yeah. um, I'm, I, I don't know your parents well so I can't answer them and, yeah. um, but I'm like come on Dom <laughs> yeah um god you there's know. no question there I've just no no stuff, yeah. I mean there's so many things to say no, despite all their best efforts and all their patience, that's, that's, that's the worst thing of this. That's why you become suicidal with this stuff because you don't think there's a solution and you know you're just causing damage to other people that you love. But there is a solution. There is, but when you don't get it or you get it for a while and it goes again, keep failing, keep tripping up again and again and again, you know, after 20 years of this now, which is why I did what I did. I just had to remove myself to stop because it's, you know, I've, I came here and I'm in my little world, but at least I, I wasn't causing daily damage that I was there. But is that true though? No, in a way, my absence is yeah. daily damage. Yeah, like. Um, uh, I know you have two daughters, but specifically along who you're you know, more closer to, if you don't mind me saying, yeah. I know you, we all love our children equally, but like... No, I lived with her, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, 
that, that isn't, you don't, I'm going to be tough. That isn't right. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's yeah, not right. No, yeah. No, I'm, totally, I'm totally, yeah, I, I'm totally in agreement with that. But that's, that is fixable. It is fixable, yeah. I know in, my plan was to change, come back successful, do all that instead. I've had this experience, but I mean, like with yourself, you've turned your life around in five years. And like experiences I've had in the past when I've been sober, and not solely, only sober, but spiritually well, um, my life has turned around incredibly. And that's always, that's the beautiful thing about life, isn't it? Is that we always have the Christians saying, you know, path to redemption can be, be on your deathbed. So that's where, yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. It's coming, trying to face up to this and work out how to... So I, what I don't know with you, what is the step from going... Like, I can tell you want to, and I can tell you're carrying this kind of like, oh, fuck. I, th- I guess part of it is like, I just don't think people will believe me or anything, or, mm. you know, can I? All this self-doubt. But, like, how do you just go from that point, you take that first step, you go, okay, here is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Like, uh, how does that happen? Because there's people waiting for you. Mm. Um, there's daughter waiting for you, of course. Mm. People willing to help you, but you've, that first thing, like, how does this happen? What? Because it's kind of got to happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm trying to make it happen at the moment. I'm trying to I'm trying to come back, not crashed, not not a mess, which I think I'm getting there pretty well. I've got my health back together. You know, I pretty much got my addictions under control. But yeah, you're right. It's the emotional aspect of returning and. And facing up to facing, I mean, it's weird because I don't. It's kind of like I don't feel it was me before. I don't really understand my decisions I made coming here. I really, it's crazy, and it's stuff that I said that I'd never do. So I don't, yeah, I'm. I'm still trying to compute it. I'm still going to kind of work out who I who I am and who I'm going to be coming back. But I suppose I'm just Dominic. Yeah, that's it. You just don't. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's just dom. They're like you just, you come back, you're dom, you're Elam's dad, you're Nick's yeah. brother, and you probably come back and do a kind of boring ass job, and you go for a walk on a Sunday, and it's all a bit just normal. Yeah. You know, it's just what it is like the rest of us. And you see me, we don't go for a drink, <laughs> we go we go down the gym, yeah. you know, and you just you just build this different life. That's yeah that normal and adult life and we drift along to 50 years old and yeah, I we reflect what, on that's this. That's what scared me when, when being a single father, that's what really scared me, that I'm going to wake up and, and it will be over and all my, all my dreams, even though I, you know, I was a good father and you know, I wasn't, but if I had been, I still always had this hole about what I wanted to do with my life because I've always been really sure. But the, the drugs and alcohol have always got in the way of that dream, not my family. But, you know, you, your kids are going to have dreams and maybe maybe part of it is just helping them with theirs. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. It is. But, um, yeah, I didn't want to get to 50 and just go... Mm. You might do. Yeah. I think 99.9% of us do, and there's this little small percentage who you know, end up you know, achieving what they always wanted to do, which is... You know, whether they're a writer, a musician, yeah, some people different kind of ambitions, but yeah, I think I think I came here. I came here to kind of reinvent myself, 
and it didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen. But this experience has, has, I don't feel like the same person as before. It's weird. Yeah, but you are. To me, you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, you're basically, you're the same Dom as at school or the same Dom who um, you know, I saw in Bedford. Mm. Just somebody who's just a bit fucking cool, very easy to talk to, it's got a good heart. I know it's there, mm. just with all this other bullshit. It's funny because my, my girlfriend, she knew me before, for about a year before I went into hospital. And she thinks I'm a completely different person than, than that person. Yeah, but I, I didn't see that person. No, exactly. And I, I'm, it's really weird having not seen all that. Yeah. I, I saw it for a moment in the embankment yeah. and I recognised it I knew exactly what was going on once I once it clicked mm. I knew exactly what was going on and I and I wanted to get you away that's why I phoned your brother and Tim and you know it didn't happen mm. but look here we are here we are again yeah um, yeah circumstances put us here together mm. I'm here to help thank you man if you want help um, if you're willing to you know do your part as well I'm not really sure how to close this out but um, you know when, when you know someone for that long when it's 27 years and even if you don't see them for 15 years in the middle of it mm. you've known them for 27 years you've known them from a kid to an adult mm. uh, you know you're a friend like I love you dearly and I want the best for you I really really I, like I say I see this going a couple of ways and I, I know which way I want it to go well, it'll be know? interesting to do a podcast in a couple of years and see what well happens. let's do it and yeah. hopefully it'll be in Bedford and you know mm. you know whatever it is but the help's there I don't know how to close it out I didn't prepare for this one usually I have questions mm. I just I knew because I knew I could just sit down and talk with yeah. you um, I just want to I just I, you know what I just want to see I just want to get be home in Bedford I want to go for a pizza with you Connor Scarlett Alarm you know perhaps your girlfriend I just want to do that mm. and then know if we've reached that point that's been a massive step mm. um, for you you know, and and you know your kids and everything, and I just hope it happens. And yeah, bless you, man. Thank you. Feeling all right? Yeah, yeah. You I did it. Was all right. Yeah, I think it was good. I mean, there are millions of different things I'd like to say to my family. Um, Do you want to add anything to this? I'm going to let them. Are you going to let them see this? Well, I just think I think I think out of. I mean, I know Nick would want to hear from you, and this yeah. is a nice way for him to hear from you. Well, Nick, um, I love you, and I really miss you. Yeah, and... and uh, I'm coming back soon. Yeah, um, and I'm probably going to go and have see your parents, um, to see how they are. I don't know if they'll want to see it. Maybe I'll just tell them what happened, but um, uh -uh. I want to see you in Bedford soon enough, man. Cool, man. <laughs> Come here. You're all right? Yeah, I'm cool, man. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Defiance. Normally I say I hope you enjoyed this interview, but I'm not really sure you can say did you enjoy this because it was such a tough and raw story and very hard hearing Dominic talk about this, but I do hope you got something from this. As I said, for me, it was quite an emotional interview for me to do. Dominic was always one of the coolest kids at school. As you can hear in the interview, he is both intelligent and articulate, so to follow his struggles with addiction and the impact on those around him has been very difficult. And there are large gaps in our history of our friendship. There is a significant gap from when we left school to when we saw each other later. And then we went our separate ways again. And I'm aware there are other people who've been through all of this with Dominic, this over a decade of addiction. And to them, I do hope 
if they are listening to this, they do get something out of this as well. Perhaps hearing Dominic talk about his struggles. Addiction is no joke, and I fully support that addiction is a disease. And if you're struggling yourself with any form of addiction, drug, alcohol, whatever it is, there is help available. I encourage you to seek it. I've been there myself. Nothing to the extent of what Dom has been through, but I have had my own struggles with drug addiction. But I'm proud of Dom. I love you, bro. I'm proud of you for battling through this. I hope your recovery continues well, and I hope to see you again. I also want to thank Dominic for sharing this story with me, which is very raw in places. It's quite difficult to tell a story such as this because it does come with a lot of shame, but Dominic articulated himself very well in this interview, and I just want to say a massive thanks to him. Hope to see you again soon, brother. Please stay on track. If you do have any questions about this interview, then please do feel free to reach out to me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.